Well, good evening. It's good to see you guys. Just come on in and take a seat. No hurry, pretty casual. Let me uh, say a prayer for us as you're walking in, and we'll jump into our lesson. Lord, I thank you for this evening. We're grateful that we can be together, that we have the freedom to come here and study your word. I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts as we ingest your word to make us the men and women that you desire for us to be and that your spirit will undoubtedly do in us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, let's see. You know the text question line. Just text your questions in during class. We uh, had a great trip to Israel. It was, yeah, thanks. It's good to be back, but it was a great trip. It was good. To, it's one of those things, you know it's a good trip when it's good to be there and it's good to be back. It's sort of like family. I call it the three-day rule. It's fun for three days, you know, when they're visiting, and then they leave, and it's all really good. But much longer than that, yeah, it's not so good. Yeah. This was just the right amount of time, just the right people. I mean, it just went great. God was gracious to us. Weather was good. Saw all kinds of great sights, and it just kind of ignites your faith. So we really enjoyed it. Uh, had a great time. And I appreciate, I told you before I left that one of these guys was going to teach, but then my wife gave me a hard time. She said, but you didn't tell them who they were. And those are our sons, and by now you know that the one on the left is our oldest son, and he taught the past couple of weeks. His name is Cole. He works, I'll tell you this because I can't assume that you know this, but he is a full-time at the church. He runs our Sunday school program, adult Sunday school, which is huge here and started and runs our college ministry. So he's one of the pastors on staff doing that. He also teaches a lot, teaches a number of times during the week in various venues. He also is a full-time student. He just finished his Master of Divinity, three-year program of that, and he's uh, this past year he's a PhD student at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville. So he's full-time working, full-time student. I have no idea when the kid sleeps. I have no idea when he finds time to sleep. But uh, I appreciate you guys have been very kind. I think it was a great experience for him, and I think it, it went well. It was very good. He enjoyed being able to share some things with you. He's got, certainly got the knowledge. And like I say, it's not as much what you know as it's knowing how much to say, you know, because there's always more that you know, and a lot of it's detail, but I think he's, he did a really good job, in my view, because I watched last week, uh, in terms of knowing what to tell that kind of brings the scripture to life. So I appreciate him doing that, and I have to say, the price was right. Uh, zero, but so, you know, it's a family discount, so it worked out really well. Yeah, th thank you, Cole, for teaching. Well, he left us in the middle of a missionary journey, chapter 13 of Acts, we've turned the corner on, some, on the early church a little bit, and you see this first missionary journey, if you will. Paul and Barnabas, John Mark for a little while, take off on a missionary journey. So I'd like to walk through the end of this. We're going to finish this missionary journey, and there's some insights that I think that I want to share with you. By the way, one of the things I don't talk about enough is why do we study the Bible? Because knowledge doesn't save us. And we know that. It's not how much you know about the Bible that gets us into heaven or not into heaven, makes us right with God or not in a right relationship with God. However, I've never found in the scripture that ignorance is a virtue. 
In other words, if we're going to know and love this God and follow him, it's kind of important to know what he has to say. The reason we study the scripture, all the history, all the other things, really comes down to this, is because this is the inspired word of God. This is what God spoke to us for the purpose, uh, the intentional purpose of telling us about himself and telling us how to respond to him. The Bible has been preserved against all odds historically that you even hold this Bible in your hand. People have died so that you and I hold this Bible in our hands, that it's the true and the continual revelation of God. That is done so that there are lessons for living and there are lessons here from these ancient Christians on how we can be faithful to God. That's why we study it. So we're going to talk about some history. I like you to see that the scripture is set in history. This isn't a fairy tale. The New Testament, I believe, uniquely among all the religions of the world, is set in history. It's set in reason. And so we're going to dive into history and see the interaction of the gospel with the world. But first, a note on the map. No offense, but I do think Cole could probably work on a little more map action would probably be better. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He did a great job with that. Let's talk about this for a second. First, what are all these places? You've got Palestine, which is, by the way, the Romans named that. This is in the Roman era, so we're now 48 years, let's say, after uh, 48 AD approximately. And so this is in the Roman era. The Romans named the nation of Israel, what we now call the nation of Israel. They named it Palestine. It was one of their provinces, like a state or a county or... They named it Palestine. That's why today Palestinians are called Palestinians. 2,000 years later is because that's the name that the Romans put on that area. So Palestine then is modern-day Israel. Uh, Syria is modern-day Syria. And it was as crazy then as it is now. Syria is still the, the nation that it was. This area up in the north where you see this missionary journey is all modern-day Turkey. In those days, it was several Roman provinces. You see the names there. So there were several different Roman districts or states or however you want to think about it in that area. That's all modern-day Turkey. So this is all happening in the same geography. Not all that much changed, really. The other thing I want to talk to you about is up in these cities where this journey is happening, I want to give you an idea of what kind of cities they are. Who lives there? Because that's going to make a difference in uh, how we interact with this. They are typically culturally very Greek. Alexander the Great, 300 years before this, conquered all this area, brought Greek language, Greek culture. They speak Greek in these places, amongst other things, but they largely also speak Greek. They have very Greek ideas, Greek culture. Uh, they, they worship many of the Greek gods in these places, so it's very much Greek culture. Later, just 100 years before this, the Romans come in and they conquer this area. And Augustus, the emperor during the time of Jesus' birth, established colonies in a lot of these places. And what the Romans would do, and this is really a smart thing to do, is they would enlist people in the Roman legions, in the army, and they would have a certain period of time that they would serve, 
And when they finished their retirement was they would give them land somewhere in the empire and they'd scatter them around. So they'd give them a farm or some land and settle them in a colony of, of uh, veterans. It was great because the veterans then had a life. In other words, they've got this land they could never have afforded and they've got the rest of their lives to you know, be citizens and marry and have children and do whatever. The Roman Empire had a lot of veterans all around the empire. And so in times of trouble, you had people who were trained who could pick up their swords and come, you know, kind of like the reserves, if you want to think about it that way, and help defend the empire. Many of these cities, not all, but many of these cities had Roman colonies there. So as they conquered the area, they would also retire a lot of their legionnaires. So these cities, by the way, that's exactly what the state of Israel does today. In Israel, almost everyone, there are some exceptions, after high school, boys go into the military for three years, girls go for two years. And so largely, every, everybody in Israeli society has been in the army. Then you come out and you go on to college or whatever. And in fact, the defense of Israel relies upon not so much the standing army, which is small, but the fact that every man and woman is a soldier. They're in the reserves, and so they call them up. And the whole nation, tiny as it is, 8 million people in Israel, tiny as it is, you have a lot of people that can be soldiers. That's what the Roman Empire did. So they scattered them around. A lot of these cities are Roman colonies. So you have a, a Greek culture, you have a lot of Romans, you have some indigenous people, and you have some small Jewish settlements. So largely, these towns are mainly uh, Greco-Roman. They're not largely Jewish. And so Paul and Barnabas are going into a culture that's not their native culture. They, these really aren't mostly Jews. Now, they're going to go and speak to the Jews first, but most of the time, these aren't Jews in this area. Well, in their last lesson, they left Antioch in Syria. They went to Cyprus and had some great adventures and spread the word there. Then they sailed on into Turkey and made their way up to Pisidian Antioch. Just, uh, Cole talked to you about this. There are a lot of cities in the ancient world named Antioch. This one happens to be in the province of Pisidia, whereas the other one is called Syrian Antioch. It's in the province of Syria. So they made their way up to uh, Pisidian Antioch, and that's where our story ended in the last time, and that's where we will pick up this time. So chapter 14 opens with them moving on then from there to the town of Iconium. Let me read this to you. At Iconium, when they reached there, Paul and Bartimus went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. They would always start there. They spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to do miraculous signs and wonders. Notice again, to see the same pattern. The miracles aren't the story. The miracles are simply there to confirm the word of God. And we've been around this, but that plays into the idea of miracles today. And so whether you believe that miracles happen today or miracles, miraculous gifts have ceased, 
the point is that their purpose then, and if they exist now, now is to confirm God's purpose. They've never been under the control of us. They've never been the main event. They've always been a confirming power. So he allowed them to do miraculous signs and wonders to confirm his grace. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, other with the apostles. Now there was a plot afoot among the Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them, kill them. But they found out about it and they fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe into the surrounding country where they continued to preach the good news. So this is what happened when they came to Iconium. And it's a typical pattern. You've seen this over and over again. They go into the town, they speak the gospel, and some believe and some do not. And the ones that believe appear to be very wholeheartedly believing, and the ones who do not appear to be very wholeheartedly not, meaning they're very hostile. And then success in the gospel also comes with opposition to the gospel. That's an important point, because I think sometimes we think, hey, how could you not tell people the good news and everybody's just going to love it? And if we'll just go out there and spread this message of God loves you and we're nice people and we're going to do good deeds, how could you not like us for that? And I think sometimes we're a little disillusioned when you realize, why is the world so hostile to us? Why do they keep passing laws that are offensive to Christians? Why do we keep getting villainized in the press as being intolerant or hateful or whatever other labels? I want you to understand that that is the model in the book of Acts, and it's the model with the gospel throughout history. So that's not something that should surprise us, is there always going to be opposition. And I'd like to make two points about that. One of them is the idea of, Cole mentioned last time, at the very end of chapter 13, it talks about them leaving another town where they've been rejected, they've been driven out, and it says, and the disciples were filled this is the last verse of chapter 13, with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And Cole talked about that. Now, wait a minute. What an interesting thing to say. You're having success in the gospel, but you're basically being beaten up and driven out of town. Why are you joyful and filled with the Holy Spirit? And it kind of comes down to the idea, and now what are they going to do? They're going to go to Iconium, and they're going to do it again. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd probably have a sense of dread, like, oh, no. Barnabas, what do you think is going to happen? Paul, you know what's going to happen. We're going to go in, we're going to preach the word. God's going to do wonderful things, and some of them are going to hate us and try to kill us. Oh, yeah, that again. Okay, let's go. Yeah, I mean, that's, that would fill me with kind of the idea of dread, but that's not their experience. Their experience is being filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And a lot of that has to do with, this, with the mindset, and that's a theme that's going to run through this chapter, and I want to plant the seed now, and I want to finish the seed at the end, because you're going to see them over and over reacting atypically to the situation. I mean, you think about, for a moment, the idea, I want to plant the seed of the idea of purpose. How is it that they can be joyful and be filled with the Holy Spirit and go into the next town knowing that likely somebody's going to try and kill them and they're going to get run out of town. I mean, how, what kind of attitude is it that, that makes that happen? I remember, this is not a great example, but it's vivid in my memory. It's probably not uh, going to mean as much to you. I'm going to give you an easy example and then a hard one. Here's the easy example. I remember when I was a boy, I spent summers on the farm. My grandparents had a farm in Kentucky. He was a sharecropper, actually, so he didn't own the farm. He farmed it for half the proceeds. Uh, so he's a sharecropper, and I worked with him in the summers. It was one of the most formative 
experiences in my life is working in the, on the farm every summer. It taught me that I definitely wanted to go to college. I mean, that, that's one lesson I learned. Actually, it came to respect the rhythm of the land and the hard work of a farmer, and it was good for me in a lot of ways, but it did make me resolve to go to college. But I remember one of the things we did, they grew tobacco there. They grew a lot of things, but they grew tobacco. So not politically correct, but that's what they grew. Tobacco plants, I don't know if you know this, but when they get to a certain height, they have huge leaves. You, can, you can't walk down in between them without just all the leaves on them. That's the whole point. That's the tobacco, right? But there's a certain point where they get these flowers on top of them, well, you need to cut those off because then the leaves will get bigger, and that's the money. That's the cash crop. So what you would do is you would walk, and you would snap off the tops. You just walk down the row. We did this for seven acres. I mean, it's a lot of work. Snap off the tops of these plants. Well, that's not so bad. That's just hard work. Here's what's really bad. Brutally hot. So you start right at dawn. And sometimes even it's a little in the dark. And here's the problem. It's always a little cool then, and there's all kinds of dew on the plants. And my most vivid memory, it's like waterboarding. You know, it's like walking down with your arms up and just getting these cold, icy, it's just as you walk, you just, it's just one after another. It's just like cold slashes. You know, you're just freezing. Get to the end, you're soaked. You turn around and we're going to go back down the next row. You know, it's just that sense of dread. You know, I hated that. I mean, I hated that feeling, and every time I turn, I go, oh, this is going to be awful, you know, and I do it. But you do it because there's a purpose. There's a greater purpose. That's an easy example. Let me give you a hard example. Chemotherapy, and some of you have been through that. That's not a pleasant thing. And yet, as much as one might dread how you're going to feel, how difficult that's going to be, you do it because you see beyond that event, don't you? You see healing. You see the hope uh, that's beyond that event. That's the attitude here, is it's not so much about the difficulties. Those things can be born because they had a vision, they had a hope, a mission of what they were doing. And that's one of the keys to living this kind of life, this kind of gospel life, is that understanding that there's more going on than the discomfort, the joys or the discomfort of life, but that you can see beyond that. The second interesting thing about this pattern of we go into town, we preach the gospel, they hate us. I mean, many people come to Christ, but the others hate us and they kick us out, is this. You know when people are trying to kill you that you are making an impact. I mean, if you stop and think about it for a minute, I want you to turn this around a little and think about it. If Christ wasn't impacting our culture, if we were irrelevant, because some people will say, faith is irrelevant, God is irrelevant, God is dead, God doesn't matter, we don't need God, we figured out evolution, we figured out everything we need to figure out, science is going to solve all our problems, etc. God is irrelevant. If God is irrelevant, why do they hate Christians? And that's my point, because he's not irrelevant. The, one of the things that you learn from this, kind of a backwards kind of lesson is, is that that kind of reaction means that you are impacting the culture. People don't get angry about things that they just don't care about. Ignoring Christianity, then I'd say, you're right, you don't think God is relevant. Attacking Christianity says, you are afraid of something. Does that make sense? And so in a weird way, I mean, not so weird, they're encouraged by this. 
the worst thing that could happen is read this, so they went into town, they preached the gospel, and no one cared. Now, that's a problem. Going into town and saying, many believed and the rest tried to kill us. Okay, Barnabas, we're doing the right thing here. So, I want you to think about that because that's true in our world as well. That's actually a sign of the power of God, of the effectiveness of the gospel. Well, after this, they move on. And they go to uh, the town of Lystra. And I'm going to read to you, I'll show you a picture here of Zeus, uh, head of the Greek pantheon of gods, and Hermes, who was the messenger, spokesperson for the gods. When they got to Lystra, the next town, something really interesting happened. At Lystra, there was a man there who couldn't walk. He was crippled from birth. This is chapter 14, verse 8. And he listened to Paul speaking. And Paul looked at him and realized that he had the faith to be made well. And so he said to him, why don't you stand up? And the man stood up and began walking. When the people saw what Paul had done, they began to shout in their native language, Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. In other words, they recognize the fact that a miracle has happened. But they're not Jews. They don't know about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So when that happened... On the day of Pentecost, the Jews go, whoa, God has done something. The Lyconians say, whoa, this is a miracle. The gods must have done something. So it's interesting that the miracle serves the same purpose, whether they know God or not. So what they say is, wow, they must have come down in human form. And so they, the priest of Zeus, who the great temple of Zeus at the entrance of the city, came in and said, Barnabas must be Zeus in human form and Paul must be Hermes because he was the one doing the talking. So they decide, go get a, a bull. We're going to sacrifice to them. One of the interesting things here is in extra-biblical literature, outside the Bible, literature uh, around this time, there are a lot of legends that they believed. And one of the legends was that there was an old couple who lived here who had entertained Zeus and Hermes unknowing that they looked like people and they entertained them, then found out they were the gods, Zeus and Hermes, and they blessed them, gave them a new home, and all these great things happened to them. And so people were very attuned to the fact that the gods might come in human form. And they see something miraculous, they go, they must be gods. And so they say, well, by all means, we're going to acknowledge that. And so they do. Well, Paul and Barnabas, they're really taken aback at this, and they say, you can't possibly do this. We're just people like you. And they actually leverage that into a little sermon. And you can read it there in chapter 14 where Paul says, wait. He tears his clothes and he says, don't do this. We are people like you. You worship gods you don't understand. This is because of the one true God. And so he takes that event and he just turns it and says, let me tell you who's really doing this. And so he has great success there. In other words, people come uh, you know, to Christ because of this, because of the miracle and understanding it. So the, it's interesting to see the gospel not just in a Jewish context, but in a Gentile context. They understand it differently, but the power of the message and the power of the miracles works effectively the same way. But as usual, it doesn't really work out uh, exactly the way they plan. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Now think about this. These are the towns that they left. Now this is no trivial thing because I need to tell you how far it is from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium is 80 miles. I mean, that's a, that's a hard four days journey. They're so ticked off 
that they come from 80 miles away, go to Iconium, pick those guys up, and go another 24 miles, another day plus, to get to Lystra just to say, hey, we came here to tell you that we tried to kill these guys because we so disagree with what they're saying, and we think you ought to try to kill them too. And that's what they do. So they came from Antioch and Iconium, all that distance, and they won the crowd over. And they stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. And the next day he and Barnabas left for Derby, the next city. What a remarkable account. And you know what's remarkable about it is it's only about three sentences long. If I have a near-death experience like this, I want more than three sentences, you know? And Terry was stoned and left for dead, but he wasn't dead, so he just got up and he went on and taught the next Wednesday. No, I need more drama than that. I want some bravery. I want some heroism. I want some drama in this, you know? But it's really kind of remarkable. Luke says, oh, yeah, that's the time they thought they killed him, but they didn't kill him, so he just got up and went on to the next town and kept preaching. I mean, it's, it's amazing in its brevity. It's amazing for a couple of other reasons as well. I want you to remember a couple of things. Back in chapter 9 of Acts, when Paul has a conversion, remember he's out and he's dragging Christians out of their homes and taking them off to prison. He's, you know, Jesus comes to him and says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, uh-oh, I, I think I was wrong here. And he's struck blind and he goes into town and God comes to a man named Ananias. He said, I want you to go see Saul, Paul, and I want you to, uh, interesting, he says, I want you to show him how much he must suffer for my name. I thought that's an interesting phrase. We looked at it at the time, is that there are going to be difficulties because of my name, which you're going to take out there. And this is what you see happening. All these difficulties is that prophecy coming true. It's not God punishing Paul. It's not like, oh, Paul, I'm going to, I'm going to punish you because of the way you treated those Christians. He says, no, I've got a mission for you, and I'm just going to be straight with you. Ananias, you need to tell him how much he will suffer for my name. And that's exactly what you see happening. This is not a surprise to Paul. You may wonder. I mean, really, one of the great things I want to get to in a second in this passage is, how do you get that kind of an attitude? Well, one of the ways you do is, he had already been told, you will indeed suffer for my name. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 17, which by the way, these towns are all in the area of Galatia. That letter is written to these churches. And he says to them in 6.17, he says, I bear the marks of Christ on my body. I think he's talking about this. He said, you guys know all these scars, you know where they came from. They came because I was giving the name of Christ and I bear the marks of that on my body. So Paul understood that he was going to suffer for the name. There's another uh, historical thing. This is, I want to kind of get around to the point because you may be saying to yourself, okay, wait a minute. Now explain to me, Terry, what part of this being a Christian thing is a good deal, yeah. right? You know, because this, this is what's happening. There's a, a, this is a true story. You may remember Ernest Shackleton. So Ernest Shackleton, he, in 1914... He decided he would organize uh, an, a, an expedition to Antarctica to cross Antarctica. It was one of the great polar expeditions that hadn't been, ever been done. He thought this is the last great polar ex exploring expedition that can happen, is to go to Antarctica 
and travel across it. And so in December of 1914, he recruited 27 guys to go with him. But I want you to listen to the ad that he put in the paper. This is the ad. Men wanted for a hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return is doubtful, <laughs> honor and recognition in case of success. That's what he put in the paper. And people responded to that. Well, you may remember that journey. It's fascinating story. If you're not familiar with it, there's a great book about it. I think there's a great PBS series about it. But they, for 28 months, or 21 months, it takes them 21 months, they fail. I mean, everything goes wrong. There is no way these guys are going to survive. 21 months, unbelievable story, and they actually end up all surviving. But that's, an, that's always been interesting to me, and we admire it. We look at those people, and you don't think, when I just told you that story, you probably didn't say, those guys are idiots. You probably, okay, one or two of you said that. But a few of the women said that. But I'll tell you, all the men said, now those are some real men, okay? That's adventure, right? In other words, we admire that kind of courage. We admire that adventure. We'd all secretly like to respond to that ad. Right? That's who we want to be. That's our sense of adventure in our life. That's what's happening here with Paul. Understanding the attitude that makes this possible is the key to handling what I call the knock-you-down events of life. I mean, Paul gets stoned and gets back up and carries on. Now, I don't think any of us are being stoned but let me just bear with me and follow the metaphor. There are a lot of events in life that knock us down. There are bankruptcies. There are divorces. There are the death of a loved one. There's a cancer diagnosis. There's so many of these things in our lives, and many of you have experienced them, and they're things that knock us down. And then the question is, what does it take to get back up and go on, and in this, to use this analogy, preach the word in the next city. In other words, go tackle the next thing that life has to throw at us and that God has in our path. What is the attitude? I think that's key to living the Christian life. It's certainly key to living a victorious life. So I want you to look at this event, and I don't want you to say any more than we said with Shackleton, well, that Paul's an idiot. He should have given up. He should have said, God, thank you very much, but I want to find a safer profession. I think I'm going to leave the ministry. You know, I don't think I'm going to do this anymore. Instead, I look at this and I say, I want what he's got. I want that kind of a perspective. What is it that's going on in his head that you can get knocked down, get back up, and charge ahead again with the joy of the Holy Spirit? Does that make sense to you? This is something that we should look at and go, I want that. I don't want to get stoned, but something is going to knock us down in life, and probably more than one thing. And I'd like to know what does it take to get back up and do that? What kind of attitude does that take? This is really a remarkable story in a lot of ways. One is, some people have tried to, to uh, explain how does this happen. First of all, he gets stoned, 
And by the way, it's not like they threw pebbles at you. They're trying to kill you. I mean, stoning is intended to kill you. And so they pick big stones. They throw them hard at you. And I don't know that any, I've never heard of any other historical account of anybody surviving a stoning. I mean, they kind of knew what it looked like when you were dead. And so they keep, they throw stones at him. They drag him out of town because they think he's dead. Now, some people say he was dead and God raised him from the dead. That's not my view. I mean, can't be dogmatic because this is what the scripture says and this is all the scripture says. But I think if, he, if that had been the case, I would have said, but the disciples gathered around and God did a miracle and raised him from the dead. Instead, the disciples gathered around and said, I don't think he's dead. No, he's moving. Well, maybe we ought to help him up. You know, and I see them helping him up and he limps off. He's got to have cracked ribs. He's got to have serious lesions. And I'll just tell you, this job did not come with a good HMO. I mean, there is no good medical care here. He's uh, described, by the way, later in extra biblical literature. So I cannot tell you that this is necessarily true. I'm just going to tell you that he's described as a guy who is bow-legged and does not walk well. Well, duh. I mean, if you get stoned, you get hurt. And so I think that he had, had to come out of this with marks. In other words, there's something going on. I mean, I don't know if you got cracked bones or fractures or whatever, but this could not have been a very easy thing. And you can imagine them helping him up, saying, man, I can't believe you're alive. Let's wipe, somebody wipe the blood off of him and let's just help him go and go into town that night and the next day back on the road again. It's a remarkable story and remarkable in its brevity, if for no other reason. But this idea, I want you to hold that thought for a moment and talk, let's talk about what does it take, you know, this idea, there's a thread running through this story of what does it take to deal with the knock you down events in life? What kind of attitude does it take to hit this pattern over and over, knowing that the next town you go in, they may try to kill you and drive you out. It's just the same with us, though, if you think about it. We have an optimism for the future. We always go into things thinking that everything's going to work out. But once you get to a certain point in life, you realize, I don't know when and I don't know where, but I do know that things won't always go smoothly. They won't always go well. And you go into it with a certain expectation. Now, that can knock us down, and we can live life in fear and dread and you know, we can become kind of the Eeyores of the world, like, oh, I'm sure they're going to try to kill us again, you know. Or you can charge life. I mean, we can charge life. We can just have that exuberance about life despite the difficulties. That's more characteristic of the Christian life. If you look at the book of Acts, one of the remarkable things is that there's nothing in here. Let me tell you what's not in this account. What's not in this account is they all got together, they got with Paul, and before he set out, he said, they all prayed and prayed and prayed. Please, 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 God, don't let us get beaten up in the next town. Please, 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 God, don't let Paul get stoned again. Please, 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 God, make our path really smooth and don't let anything unpleasant happen in the next town. Isn't it interesting you never see that prayer? You don't see that prayer at all in the book of Acts. That's kind of crazy if you think about it. Because I think our first option would be, oh Lord, I need you to come to my rescue and I need you to make things work out really well. You don't ever see that prayer. 
And I think that's important to us because I think what we want is not this life of praying, God, 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 you've got to make everything smooth because that's all I can handle. I think we'd rather have the kind of life that says, whatever God life does that knocks me down, the Holy Spirit empowers me to get back up and we will keep moving and rejoicing while we do it. That's a victorious life. That's something that people are going to flock to. People are not going to flock to the message of Christ if we're all moping around like, yes, Jesus is my Savior and life really, really stinks. You know, oh, woe is us. All the troubles, have you seen how they hate us? I can't understand it, but it's terrible. It's a story of somebody uh, going to, uh, I think this was in either Korea or China, and I remember this the story being related, and this, is, this has happened more than once. But being with some of the believers in those countries that experience persecution far more than we experience. I think we are beginning to experience persecution, but they experience it in a much harsher way. And beginning to pray for them that says, Lord, protect them. And they said, wait a minute. Actually, we would rather you not pray that God protect us. We'd rather that you pray that he empower us, give us courage to go share the faith regardless of the circumstances. That's the Acts kind of faith. Does that make sense? That's not only the kind of faith that spreads the word, that's the kind of faith that leads to, I hate to use this word because the prosperity gospel people have hijacked it, victorious living. In other words, living John 10.10, I came to give you life to the full. Life to the full does not mean I came to make everything smooth. It came to say, I came to give you this victorious faith so that when life knocks you down, that you can get up in the joy of the Holy Spirit and move on. That's victorious living. That's, to me, what keeps coming up over and over in the book of Acts. Question? We'll pause there while uh, Paul is recovering himself, and then we'll move on. Just a couple. Um, could you explain again why so many cities are named Antioch? Uh, well, the, the likely reason for that, I mean, I, I think it's pretty certain is back in the Seleucid dynasty, so these are the Greeks, after Alexander the Great, these are the Greeks that are ruling this whole part of the world. Before the Romans roll in and conquer everybody, there are Greek rulers. And one of the guys, actually a whole group of them were named Antiochus. I mean, that was their name. Think like Caesar or Herod. It was kind of a family name kind of a dynasty, and they were egomaniacs, and so they named cities after themselves. So I think a lot of these Antiochs are named after this family. Good question. Do we know why on Paul's return journey he went back to uh, the cities where he had been stoned and run out of town instead of just going maybe on to Tarsus and... Yeah, I'd go home. <laughs> I just book a one-way flight to Tarsus and go home. Mom, Dad, it's been horrible. Yeah. No, hey, I want to talk about that, actually. I think that's another remarkable feature. Let's move on, and we'll talk about that, because it's pretty interesting. It's after he goes and he leaves for Derby. So here's what's going to happen on our map. He's going to move on, kind of see where we are. He's gone to Iconium, Lystra. He's going to go to Derby, and he's going to preach there. Then he's going to turn around and he's going to retrace his steps basically all the way back home to Antioch in Syria. He's going to go all the way back, and I want to talk to you about what he's doing there. That return journey is fascinating. 
Who goes back to places where they tried to kill you? Well, I'll tell you who goes back there. It says they preached the good news in that city, Derby, and won a large number of disciples. Then they turned around, and now we're going to go back to these cities in reverse order. They returned to Lystra, where he got stoned and left for dead, Iconium, where they ran him out of town, and Antioch, Pisidian Antioch. He went back. Why? Strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. This is pastoral. This is going back to say, it's not going to be easy to be believers here. They kicked me out of town. They're obviously not going to like you very well either. And he wanted to make sure that he strengthened them in their faith and encouraged them to be true to what they had believed. This is like a medic going into fire to drag a wounded soldier out during a battle. Why do you do that? Because he needs your help. You can save his life. I mean, it's, it's incredible heroism and it's bravery. That's what Paul is doing. He wants to ensure their souls are saved. He wants to ensure their faith is whole. And so he goes back to encourage them and strengthen their faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. They said, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord, the elders, in whom they had put their trust which is two interesting things there. And then I'll go back to the main point of this. They're appointing elders already. The idea of elder-led churches, and when I say led, think of elders here more as pastors than as rulers. Uh, these elders are there to shepherd and pastor their faith, to continue to teach them about Jesus Christ and what he calls on us to do, to live, and to encourage them in their faith. It's a very pastoral role. So he's appointing elders, this church organization, very early. It's one of the earliest uh, incidents of when, how you see the church getting organized. So you have these elders slash pastors who are strengthening them. The other is, interesting word, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. That word is literally, and I tell you this a lot, but I want to emphasize it. That word is just believe, in whom they have believed. But I really like it. In this environment, you realize that our idea of believing in Jesus will not survive this kind of treatment. When the scripture talks about believing, John 3, 16, whoever believes in him isn't saying, yeah, I believe you're Jesus. That belief will not survive this kind of treatment. It's trust. Put our trust in Christ. I love it that they translate it that way because in this circumstance, it's going to take trust not just belief. And so that's what the scripture's talking about. The part I really want to talk about is this. Listen to what Paul and Barnabas taught them. We must go through many hardships. The word there is actually tribulations. It's the same word that's all over the book of Revelation. Remember that? Seven years of tribulation, all that really unbelievable stuff that happens, none of it pleasant. That's this word. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Here begins to answer the riddle of what does it take to have that attitude of go into the, remember we talked about going to the next town? How do you do that knowing that you're going to have success of the gospel, but they're going to try to kill you? How do you do that? Then we talked about how do you get stoned? How do you get knocked down by life and you get back up and you go on with joy 
and the Holy Spirit. What, what kind of mindset? This is the key. He tells them up front, he says, it is necessary for us to go through hardships to enter the kingdom of God. It's like, this is a poor example, but it's like the chemotherapy. It says, it is necessary for you to endure this chemotherapy to be healed. It's setting expectations. Jesus did this very well too. Remember, in this world you will have trouble, but rejoice, I have overcome the world, meaning you will be healed. You will be well. You will be eternally healed and eternally well. Jesus sets our expectations. One of the greatest disservices that we do, particularly in American Christianity, and when I say we, I'm including me, one of the greatest disservices that we do to, our, to believers is not to teach that because your expectations really set your experience. I mean, you know that. Your expectations in an event determine your experience. If you go into a restaurant and you go, oh, well, I just got to tell you right now, the food here is great, but the service is terrible. And then you have good service, you're just happy as you can be. You're like, wow, this is a great place. I wasn't expecting that. I'm really happy. If your expectation is, oh, this is an awesome restaurant, I'll get top-notch service, and you get lousy service that day, what do you do? You walk out in a bad mood. Your expectations largely determine your experience of an event. It may go well, it may go poorly, but it's your expectation of that. If you know that the shot is going to hurt, okay, the shot hurts. If you think you're not getting a shot, see, this is what, when I was a kid, I was still mad about this. This is what Air Force doctors do. We would walk in, because you know, no kid wants to get a shot. My brother one time, this is totally off the subject, but this is hilarious. I mean, it wasn't. My mom was mortified. My brother got in there one time, because we always ask mom, are we getting shot? Are we getting a shot? Bless her little heart. No, you're not getting a shot. Oh, mom, you lied. Anyway, but I don't blame her now. I have kids. I know why she did that. So we get there. He sees the needle, because they were really good. You know, you just sit there, you swab your arm. What are you doing? Oh, my gosh, you just gave me a shot. You know, I'm surprised, right? He saw it takes off screaming down the, the halls of the hospital. You're trying to kill me. I mean, really, this is terrible. Takes off screaming. My mom is like, oh, this is not my child. This is not my child, right? Expectation really largely determines our experience. What God is doing is being very honest. You show Paul how much he must suffer for my name. You will encounter trouble in this world, but take heart. I've overcome this world. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. If we are honest about this, then we go into the Christian life with our eyes open, knowing that our God is greater than he who is in the world. He is greater than any of these difficulties, but we will indeed go through difficulties. And not only that, the scripture says, you must go through difficulties because our faith cannot be formed without some difficulties. It's like going to the gym. Is this gonna be fun? No. If my workouts are always fun, I will not progress. I need to be tired. I need to be fatigued. I need to have some level of unpleasantness. But I know that's what's going to make me strong. That's the Christian idea of hardships, of difficulty. That's the key to having that mindset. How can you deal with the knockdown events of life is knowing they are necessary and that our God is able to use them 
to accomplish his purpose in the world and in our life. I want you to think about that. That sounds glib, but that's a profound idea. It's all through the New Testament. It's certainly all through the book of Acts. But if you've ever wondered, how can I have that attitude to have the joy of the Holy Spirit in the midst of the knockdown events of life, it's knowing that God told me that's going to happen. And God said, this will make me strong. He will use this in my life for his purposes in me and in the world. Now I can endure anything. We can overcome. I can do all things through Christ. That makes sense? That doesn't mean I can be anything I want. It means I can deal with all the knockdown events of life because of Jesus Christ, because he empowers me to do that. It's that attitude that makes a huge difference in our lives. Paul actually goes through an interesting catalog later. I want to make this even worse. In 2 Corinthians, he says this. He says, now, I have worked harder, been in prison more frequently, more frequently, like more than once. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. You know why they would do that? They, they were only allowed to give you 40 lashes, and they were afraid they'd miscount. Seriously. So they only do 39 in case they miscounted. They didn't want to go over so 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. I think Cole told you that's a Roman punishment. And I was, once I was stoned. You heard about that. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles. I've been in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. I even went on the Shackleton expedition. He says, I've gone without sleep. I had made that up. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold. I've been naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. That's why he turned around and went back. He's not afraid of the hardships. He's more concerned about, will their faith hold up? Will they be bold? I need to tell them, you must go through hardships so that they will know what's coming and they'll be strong through it. That's why Paul turns around and goes back. After that, they went through Pisidia, Pamphylia. These are the, the, the uh, districts. And when they reached, uh, they preached the word in Perga, went down to Italia. And from there, they sailed back to Antioch, where they'd been committed by the grace of God for the work they'd completed. When they got home, this is really interesting, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time. So the journey ends... They get back, and you've seen in the, in the journey, I hope you think about this a little bit, is anybody that tells you that life can just be smooth and have no problem is lying to you. Anybody tells you that life is hard and you might as well just grit your teeth and, and deal with it as best you can is also lying to you. The scripture says you must go through some hardships, but take heart. The Holy Spirit is with you. You can have the joy of the Lord even in the midst of the hardships because you see what is on the other side. It's like every difficult thing that we go through, we can, do, we can endure if we see we keep our eyes fixed on the author and the perfecter of our faith. So they get back, and here's the, the final key to this. They get back, and it's interesting. They don't report all that they did. They don't even report all that happened. Look the way they say it. 
They reported all that God had done through them. This is the final key. Because so far you're saying, I see what you're saying, Terry. I need to have faith. I need to know what's coming. I need to grit my teeth. I need to keep my eyes on the prize. I need to see beyond the events. Okay, that's true, but with one twist. You don't need to be so stressed about that. Because actually, it's what God is doing with us and through us. They put this in, in a brilliant way. They realized everything that happened was God directing events, God working through them. That is a huge difference of, I have to tough it out. I have to have this great faith, as opposed to, I have to let God work through me. Completely different mindset. God is able to work through us to the victorious life. I'm probably not able to always have my vision right, to always tough it out, to try harder, have faith. That's not the vision here. It's let God work through us to the victorious life. Here's the difference. If you're trying really hard to overcome, you will have a lot of anxiety and you're just going to have a really difficult time. If we relax and say, God is going to work with me and through me, in all of these events, you don't have a lot of anxiety. It's not all on me, it's all on God. It's all on what he's gonna do. Now you can live boldly, you can live with confidence because you don't have to figure out how to get through this. God is gonna figure out how to get through this. Does that make sense? This is a key idea to living a joyful life. Remember we've talked about Paul. In Philippians, he's gonna write a little bit later in his life, 411, he said, I have learned the secret of being content in every circumstance, even all those that we just read about in 2 Corinthians. How do you do that? You do that by having this understanding, is God is going to work through us in all of these circumstances. We can be bold and confident in any circumstance. Why? What if it doesn't work out the way I want? Let me just tell you, it won't work out the way you want, but it will work out the way God wants. That's how we get out of the anxiety of it, is relax. Let God work through us. Go be who you are in any circumstance. Pray when you're, when you're in difficult circumstances, but trust God to overcome it. When you're stoned, get back up and say, God, what will you do through me? Empower me for this, and he will empower you for that. So this, this is an interesting little string of events to me. You begin by saying, how can you go city after city knowing it's going to be difficult. Then you go, how can you get knocked down, stoned, and get back up and go on with joy? Then you begin to see the solution, and you go, oh, because they know. God has already told us. These things will happen, and I have overcome them. And then they get back, and they say, hey, did you guys able to tough it out? No, we weren't, but you won't believe what God did with us. You won't believe what God did through us. We just went out there and preached the word, and whoa, all kinds of stuff happened here. You won't believe what God was doing. That's the key to living an anxiety-free life. Trust that God is working in you and through you. Trust that God will work even through the knockdown events in life. I'd like for us to get to the point where we end our journey just like they did, rejoicing at what God has done. It didn't go back and they say, you guys are not going to believe this, but next time we want double pay because Paul got hurt 
And Barnabas had his feelings hurt, and they didn't like it. You know, I mean, they, that's not what they go back and talk about. They go back and talk about, you are not going to believe what God did. You will not believe. We could not have imagined in our wildest dreams what he did. We couldn't have imagined in our wildest dreams that we could have gotten back up and gone on. But look what he did through us. That's the Christian life. So my message to you is relax. Quit trying to do it yourself and trust in God. And then nothing can really knock you down that you can't get back up from. Does that make sense? Well, next time, trouble in the church. Here's the problem. It's not trouble from the Gentiles who are trying to kill them. It's not trouble because they don't have faith and that they know that God will see them through this, that God will do amazing things with and through them in the midst of these difficulties. That's not the threat to the church. You know what the threat to the church is? Inside the church, it's the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians arguing about who's really a good Christian. And so next week, the church is going to come perilously close to splitting but what's really interesting is, how do they resolve that? Because I think that's a clue for us on how to resolve our tensions as well. They end up with a very interesting solution, and that's what we'll talk about next time, all right? This week, relax. Let God do things with and through you, all right? I'll see you next week. <laughs>